through listening, we actually create this set of connections with different things and we make sense of connections. The meaning of sound, the meaning of music is about like relations, about patterns. This conversation took place three days before the death of Massa Gina Amini in Tehran. The protests as a result of her death marked the recent movement of woman, life, freedom, Jin Jinan Athadi, in Iran, reflecting the ongoing sufferings of people in Iran over the years. Parts of the sound work performed by Pantea in Sonic Acts contain sounds from Sakes River, recorded months before the current events. The river, which has been partially dried, is transforming now into a new wetland area in the middle of the city. Saketh, the hometown of Gina Amin. Hello, you're listening to Overexposed, and today we talk to Pantea who is a resident in the residency program of Sonic Acts that is investigating pollution and its effects on everything living and non-living. My name is Arif. And I am Andrea. In this podcast, we always ask the artist to bring an artifact that can be a sound piece, a material, an object, an image, or whatever move their work in a lasting way. And Pantea brought us an article, Breaking the Silence, Language and the Making of Meaning in Plants. In the first edition of Overexposed, some artists brought a feeling, some brought an image, a still image from a movie. So we had a very broad range of understandings of what is an artifact and how it's connected to an artist's work. And we are very curious to discuss your artifact. For me, it was actually a bit difficult to pick one artifact when you, when you ask. Because, of, because what you described, I think the idea is very, very interesting and I love it. Um, but when you asked, I thought that would be really like one, ex, like a field experience. Um, and I wasn't sure how to, you know, um, send that. Um, and then when I was like, um, I sent you this article and then when I was thinking about it, I thought, oh, there are a lot of like other things that um, connect with this article. So it was more like a set of happenings or set of events or things that led from not specifically just this article, but just one experience or like a, an experience that this article was part of. Which was for me, um, you know, before doing the work that I'm doing and you know, this um, re artistic research in their um, overexposed residency. I was like an artist working with video designing and light designing uh, for theater performances for years. Um, and then there was this time that I kind of thought, you know, what is really the purpose of what I'm doing as an artist? And, you know, what is, what is it, how is it helping and what is it doing really? in this world and the world is collapsing and I'm like watching my <laughs> light designing. And it was very, um, I don't know, it felt absurd. And I felt like, you know, there's no relation between what I'm think, you know, what I'm 
how I'm living or how I want to live or basically like, um, you know, my existence and then what I'm like doing. Uh, and then in the first place, when you become an artist, it's um, because you really want to, um, you know, there are things that you want to challenge, but I, I somehow saw myself within a structure that I was not really challenging anything. Yeah. And um, I don't know. And, and then, uh, you know, because I was like uh, traveling in different countries and being in different festivals, and then I ended up being in this, like, uh, yeah, I was like framed as a woman, uh, Iranian woman, you know, who is like uh, fighting for freedom because I was doing theater, which was, which didn't really make sense for me. So at, um, at that time, for some time, I really did nothing for a while. And um, I was just um, um, trying to basically see how it would be to live and and not really do anything so much like uh, because one of the things was that uh, when I traveled to the Europe and to the West, I noticed that people talk about environmental issues a lot and they're really aware about what's going on. But then on the other hand, the way they live is ironically so much less environmental, let's say, comparing to people who live in Iran. The people who live in Iran live like a more, let's say, maybe sustainable life without really thinking or being aware of the environment, but it's more coming from like the limitations or um, just the situation there. Um, so for a while I did nothing and I did gardening and, um, and then um, at that time I traveled to Scotland. But yeah, I somehow ended up to uh, Edinburgh to study a master's course. Um, which in my view connected what I did as an artist to like more of my concerns about the environment. And I thought that would be the only way for me uh, to make sense of what I want to do. Uh, but then, you know, that irony of um, this, uh, in, that irony for me intensified because um, again, I was doing this art program, environmental art program, but uh, you know, in the art, in the, um, in the program, we were like wasting so much material to do something for the environment. So that's how I ended up not being in our art studio and spending my time in the peatlands in Scotland without really knowing about them. And, um, and then again, trying to see what I can not do as an artist. Um, like I'm uh, currently, I'm part of this sound collective called Khamush, um, which means silence in Farsi, but it also implies some sort of um, non-action or doing nothing or like avoidance of unnecessary action, if that makes sense. Um, so I was really like somehow like uh, connecting to this idea. I think it's a prominent um, like way of thinking in uh, Iranian philosophy or Iranian thinking um, that sometimes the wisest thing is silence or doing nothing. Uh, but then being in the peatlands, I, I noticed that, you know, people would just ask me, why are you going there? It's so empty, nothing happens there. But then through listening, I noticed there are a lot of things happening. And then I noticed that, uh, you know, like for me, listening is becoming um, this way of, um, making sense of my surroundings and making meaning 
of what's there. And I, um, I somehow remembered uh, that it reminds me of some areas in Iran. And I couldn't really understand why I remember those places because they have nothing in common. And those were places that were close to the mountains. And at the time, I didn't know that they're actually like part of one ecology because those places were also like wetlands and peatlands are also wetlands. Um, but one thing is that in Iran, we don't really, we don't really call like they're not really categorized by their like scientific or ecological names, but rather through the way that they're culturally managed. So for example, uh, one, area, one, one type of wetland, which is called Abandon, which is something that I wrote, um, a topic that I wrote about um, in my um, writing um, at Sonic X publication, is like a mixture of peatlands and marshes uh, but but it up means water and bandon means the site of flowing or the the site or time of flowing um, for which means for the water but so it implies that the water is flowing but it but it also implies that the water is paused in a space uh, so basically this is how they call the wetlands there but it's um like um it's very hard to get categorized because it has shared um, histories with uh, natural wetlands, but then it's also like uh, categorized in the Ramsar Convention, which is this convention to protect wetlands internationally as human-made wetlands. Um, so it's something in between. And it's also um, a place uh, where it's like an irrigation system and a way of like managing the water sustainably for growing rice. Uh, so it's very hard to say it's only a wetland. It's, and it's, you know, just a way of life or a set of relations. As a starting point for this conversation, you brought us this text that is called Breaking the Silence, Language and the Making of Meaning in Plants by Monica Gagliano and Mabra Grimompres. And we were also curious about, yeah, why did you bring us this, this text? How did you select it? Yes, so, so I read this article for the first time during my master's studies, during the time that I was disappointed <laughs> of being an artist and just trying to find a way of, um, you know, how I can um, yeah, be more, you know, useful in a way, or I don't know how, yeah, what's the relation of my practice uh, to you know what's going on in the world and um so there there was this course called environmental humanities um which was led by a philosopher called Michelle Bastian um she's a senior lecturer in environmental humanities and her work is about time uh, phenology and field philosophy and at the time as as i said i was very disappointed at art and also at doing research because i thought you know, this all remains in a close circle of people who are interested in arts and in research, but it, it doesn't really lead to something. And then we had this assignment of choosing one subject study and very like specific subject study and try to understand a bigger subject, let's say like an ecology or an issue through the perspective of that very specific thing. And I chose this plant called sundew. 
because sundews were in in peatlands, and I was getting more uh, interested in wetlands uh, and more curious. Um, and also because people like my my current supervisor back then told me if uh, it's very interesting that you want to know more about wetlands because you come from a country that has no wetlands. Um, but actually in Iran, there are like more than 200 different types of wetlands. Almost all uh, categories of wetlands are in Iran. Um, and also the Ramsar Convention, which I was talking about, um, it was uh, done in a um, um, city in the north of Iran uh, where there are many abandons. And um, so, so I was, um, I chose this plant because this plant grows in wetlands and I thought that would be just a good excuse to, you know, learn more about wetlands. And it was just for me, like then an assignment, but then um, this assignment turned into like a ongoing uh, obsession about this plant. And for me, it's also like now I feel this plant is shaping my practice, is taking me to new places and to new countries, to new spaces. And um, so what happened was that I started to know more about Sandu from like, um, you know, the science that is written about Sandu, right, about the plants. And Sandu is a plant that is somehow challenging because it doesn't need soil to grow. It eats insects and, you know, it somehow like doesn't have those characteristic, like typical characteristics characteristics of plants so I was really interested to know more and you know like plants are usually seen as these like passive insensitive background for the human world and and you know the the science that I was reading was always always like uh, seeing plants as uh, properties that can be used and as separate somehow like yeah just enact enact objects that you can you, you know you know more about them like there was always this hierarchical relation. So then I was also like researching more into why this research has been done. And then I thought as an artist, um, maybe I redefined what I'm doing as an artist through searching for the sandu, not only through like these preset, uh, prefigured ways of knowing the sandu, but through actually my own experience of listening, of being in the field, and uh, so basically my art project was going to different peatlands and looking for the sandu. But then through this experience, I got to know many things about many birds, many humans, many places. And then I created this sort of like mind map, which is just ever expanding. And it's like, you know, like this is why I'm saying like sandu is also speaking with me now because we're just part of this process ever since. And that article is actually about, you know, it's part of, was part of this like artistic research that I was doing at the moment about Sandu that, um, you know, there are so many refreshing science and, you know, science coming out of like cognitive biology mostly, uh, you know, that refers to like plants, uh, intelligence, plants, cognition, and they provide this like fundamental framework for challenging the depiction of plants as uh, passive and, uh, you know, passive objects or passive subjects of study. But then there's no, like, integration of such science related to, you know, plants' memory, plant, plant, plants' language. Uh, and it's not just a metaphor. 
so the article is actually about how a plant communicates not only through like how it's uh, evolutionized like biologically evolutionized but also through a set of like cultural relations so also like what a plant individually learns um so i thought um you know there's somehow this like gap between what we know about plants but but also how we feel them so you know you don't really see this kind of knowledge in the art world so it's not just about monica monica gucklin is super inspiring for me but there are also a lot of like other you know, thinkers um, that uh, does work around like plants ethics. Yeah, just different ways of knowledge related to plants. One of them is also Robin, Robin Walt Kimmerer, uh, who is an indigenous biologist. And her work is also super inspiring for me. Yeah, so as I said, this work actually connects to this set of events that for me enables me to make sense of myself as an artist in this world. and try to somehow redefine what I'm doing as an artist and survive, which is very hard <laughs> to do. Yeah, we really uh, also enjoyed this article. It connects to uh, different topics also, I think, that also people around us work with. But it was great to read it. And I thought also for the, for the podcast, maybe it'd be nice to, to actually read one or two sections. I, I did some highlights, but also... You probably know the article way better. I was wondering if you have something in mind, and otherwise I could also just read a small section if you want. Yes, I would love to know what, which uh, parts you highlighted, but I also highlighted some sections. So this um, question of you related to breaking the silence, I think one of the things I really find interesting about the article is that it tries to challenge our language as like a very exceptional, you know, like a uh, feature of humans. Uh, and uh, so bringing like human language to non-humans and vice versa. So um, for me, one of the parts that I really, I thought I would like to read is about this idea of like cultural background. So um, the greatest advances in our understanding of plant language have been in ingeniously delivered by a relatively small number of scientists who have adopted ecologically driven approaches where the cultural background is taken into account. This is because meaning emerges during interactions among organisms. Hence, language is not a fixed property of that organism. For example, a specific chemical compound, but rather a truly ecological dynamic process of relationships by which meaning emerges to shape the production of behaviors that in turn shape new interactions for new meanings to emerge. Um, for me, this really also connects to, and for me, it's also like a new way of, you know, communicating uh, or at least exploring and imagining new ways of um, communicating. We will put the link to this, to this paper in the podcast notes. And if you're listening now, you can... Uh, kind of read along and the section that uh, that you just read is on page 150 at the end of the article and i also highlighted that section but i also highlighted the next uh, kind of the end of that paragraph so um this is a nice uh, synchronization so i'll just keep on keep on reading so uh, they write then in practice reducing such an active ecologically vibrant process to a fixed and petri dish like property has resulted in substituting the subjective material plant with an abstraction. 
the scientific idea of what an objectified plant is, does, and knows. Um, I'll, I'll go on, but yeah, I really like this kind of, uh, it's such a sharp observation, right? That the human drive seems to be to kind of cut open things and to dissect them, as we have also seen in kind of other scientific disciplines when it comes to the other. But actually the context and, and communications uh, is, is what you ignore if you do that. Um, and then it continues, uh, far from being trivial, the cultural construction of plants as objects of scientific exploration not only contradicts the emerging and expanded understanding of plant behavior, including matters of plant intelligence, agency, and intersubjectivity, but is also of ethical significance in the context of human-plant relations. We suggest that an embodied conception of language could offer a valuable step towards de-objectification of plants and the recognition of their subjectivity and inherent worth and dignity, renewing a sense of ecological intimacy and kinship with these non-human living others and just promoting human care for nature. Yeah, so this is, this is the end and, uh, of the article, right? Uh, I think this is, this is very... Uh, yeah, it uh, really struck me reading this. It is also, it leaves you, of course, with more question than it, than it poses. But I think the, what, what the article at least gave me is, is more to kind of, yeah, it kind of add, add, invites you to reorient your approach. I mean, I don't know what it does to you, this article. <laughs> exactly. I love this part that you chose because it's also about redefining language and having like this totally new approach uh, towards um using the not only language, but also the way that we use language for, and then how this impacts language itself. Um, so this was like really, um, yeah, for me, very interesting. And I think also very, very important in doing work about non-humans because, because one of the challenges is that we, we some, we, to know that we are not to be separated is like very tricky because then we can, sometimes we can ignore or not really know what the other is feeling. But then if we want to talk about the other, let's say, how do we really do that? That we, in a way that we don't create, create this hierarchy, you know, this is a challenge. But also I myself have been felt as like the other <laughs> sometimes in my life. And I know that there is always like a, a relation and there's always like that you, um, there's no like objective, uh, like pure objective perspective. And there's always like this, uh, you know, context where subjectivities are shared. And, um, and for me, like listening is the most simple way of doing it. It's um, something that also I had to think of while, while reading it. Is, I mean, you're reading this article, or at least I was reading this article and. If I'm completely honest, I, I do feel a little bit of resistance at first, right? Because we are so culturally trained to understand our own ability to reason and to use language as superior to other things. That uh, even though I'm, I was very open to the idea of language, of plans, and, and how meaning operates differently, you do have to jump through a couple of hoops to really I get there, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I just accept that intrinsically or something. So, but I, I think this, this transformation that they invite you to do is really interesting exactly because 
like you're saying, uh, what it does at the core is challenge the existence of something like objectivity, right? Because there is no answer to this question if there is a language like our language, because the, the question should be different, right? It's like, how do we interact even though there are different forms of being and different forms of language? Exactly. And, and it's not separated from the way we live, right? Um, and, and, you know, there was this part in the article that it's about this like African bird who um, like uses false alarms. So uses the way that language is used as a way of like conveying another set of information, which is really interesting. But, you know, so basically like language is something connected to like something, you know, like a lived experience, right? And then understanding that we have like very different ways of living and that that like fundamentally changes uh, how a language is built and, you know, like it, the way of thinking, the way of feeling, and the way of navigating this world. And I think for me, that's how, like, what the art writers say about, like, more integrated approach of language. Maybe it's nice to also read uh, the example that you just gave about the bird. I'll read, um, this is on page 147. Birds have a considerable repertoire of sounds, which develops into articulate and complex songs, constituting part of their language and exists alongside their innate call system. Then a bit further, it says, moreover, a recent study by Flower, Gribble and Ridley found that a species of African bird is in fact rather talented at using language, especially that of other species, to cry wolf in a bit to scare other animals away and steal their food. As true tacticians, these birds change their calls in response to the feedback they receive from their dupes, so that when one false alarm no longer works, the birds switch to another species' warning cry. Whether or not these birds are actually intuiting what others are thinking or adapting their behavior by reflecting upon their meaning-making activity, the fact remains that their mastery of language is, like our own, a demonstration of a very accomplished capacity for creating sounds that acquire meaning because of how the information is used, which ultimately enhances their survival. Exactly how, though, do we approach others whose languages we fail to notice because they appear silent to us? Yeah, how, uh, how do you approach that question of approaching the other? You, you mentioned sound, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, um, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah, I don't really have answer, um, but it's, for me, like listening is, is not only about sounds, but it's actually about how you, you know, how you interpret that listening process for yourself. And it's, it's different from one person to another because of that, uh, you know, because of their cultural background and also because of like the physical, like features of a body, right? So I think as uh, Pauline Oliveros uh, talks a lot about this, like the difference between listening and hearing. So one thing, um, for me about plants is that they, through listening, we actually create this set of connections with different things and we make sense of connections. The meaning of sound, the meaning of music is about like relations, about patterns and how, again, we inter interpret them and we interpret them very differently. So I think um, one thing about this article that talks about plants' language is how they, how plants do it you know, uh, silently and uh, through like uh, exchange of uh, chemicals and information, you know, that appears silent to our ears. 
So one is to understand our like physical, you know, um, subjectivity, including what limits us and what defines our hearing process and also our experience as individuals, which is very cultural based and yeah, very, uh, again, subjective. Yeah, it's quite interesting that a couple of months ago, we were interviewing an artist based in, in Amsterdam that is actually from Colombia. Her name is Milena Bonilla. I don't know if you know her work. And we, we were discussing something that I think resonates with this uh, communication challenge. That is how she understood the idea of the intelligence intelligence of the plants. She works a lot with narcotic plants. So for example, plants that have PHUs or psychedelics or even cocaine, I think we discussed. So like plants that have an effect on the human body, let's say, or like uh, drugs or like that could be used as drugs. As drugs. And that we, we, would, we would basically extract something from this plant and use it, which is basically this kind of idea of like cutting the plant and just extracting what we are interested in. Whereas traditionally these plants would be like talking to the intelligence of the plant would be basically like relating with the plant as a whole. So the plant would have a message to deliver. But this message, yeah, it's quite also linked to this psychedelic or like the effect that this plant has, has on the human body. But it, it, was, it was explained in terms of communication. It was one of the opening doors for this understanding of how we are also pre-set to conform everything that, has, that is around us. So I never thought about the difference between cocaine as a substance and the plant. You know, I was just like, okay, so we just like improve this and do the best of it. But we are actually missing that encounter. So I don't know, that resonates uh, in that sense for me. And, and I think it's, it's also, yeah, it also falls into this idea of like non-Western systems of knowledge that is also, I mean, basically we cannot even understand non-Western systems of language. <laughs> like, how are we going to understand plants, you know? For me, it's like, uh, I don't know, that's a very big conversation. But yeah, just a divergent. It's nice that there's these links between the podcast that we are doing, that suddenly there's this, a conversation that starts three months ago and then suddenly... Yeah, for sure. It's uh, also in this article, it talks a lot about like like compares this like cross-cultural conversation um, between like humans and other species with humans from like coming from different cultures and uh, somehow like comparing this diversity and to um, the diversity of communication between different species as well and to understand that uh, culture is not just something specific to humans. It's also, you know, um, something very interesting for me in that it's also, you know, like I was talking about how in Iran, the wetlands are not categorized by their, you know, scientific name. And like, you know, peatland is referring like a land that has the peat. And again, you know, like a land with peat, right? And then the peat, which is part of the soil, is seen as like, again, like a separate property and the land contains the peat. But then... Um, with like um, abandon in Iran, uh, which I think the most important thing about these wetlands are the way the relations of the humans with these wetlands 
um, and the culture, the culture that is shared like between humans and uh, you know the wetlands. They don't some some like local people. They don't really know about the peat. I mean, they do, but they don't actually call these lands peatland. You know, it 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 makes no sense in their way of thinking. But it's mostly about how humans work with the land and how humans work with the water and how the water you know um, is moving through the land because of these interactions. So you're also making uh, music and you work with sound, right? And we, we discuss now the artifact, um, but we're also curious to hear how, yeah, what, what it means 
to put like listening into practice and also to create sounds, right? When when you are so kind of aware of what listening means and also what how let's say communication is uh, implied in it. Yeah, I think just again connecting to um, like um, again the experience of exploring you know, exploring my art practice and, uh, you know, me as an artist was part of it was about understanding that, um, like, you know, we usually see everything as like a linear hierarchy, or even if it's not hierarchy, we see it as a, like a linear path or linear route. So for example, I always had this idea that, you know, I'm here and being an artist means like, you know, there's this dot that I am there, and then there's another thought, thought that it's like being an ideal artist, let's say. And then this, um, you know, this way of thinking just deconstructed everything for me in a way that, you know, like I'm not really separated from those that I'm working with or I'm working about. And then also my work, even though that I'm like very... I feel I'm not like a super social person, but then um, my work is becoming more and more socially based and socially engaged. It's more like leaning towards a socially engaged practice because, it, you know, for me, it's like more like a nonlinear way of working, which means that I'm just sharing and getting and receiving and giving and uh, forming something collectively through you know, working with sounds and listening. So to so maybe this is like very uh, complicated way of saying simply that I just like to share my experience of listening. At its core, it's like uh, one of the things about music. One of the very interesting things is is that we can uh, actually have we can share some kind of experience that we don't we 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 can't really just do through words, right? And and we do it in different ways but then it really connects us. So it comes from like a very individual, um, you know, point of view, but then it's very also collective. So for me, um, this is just creating some sort of like working with sounds and, and, and using music as a medium to, as a context of basically like practicing um, these concerns is just creating connections between these separated spaces or separated disciplines or separated, you know, uh, ways of thinking. And sometimes I use like, you know, like some uh, field recordings. I always use field recordings and my listening process as a starting point for making music. And then I'm also very interested that how some people who listen to some sort of music that I feel they might have no connection with the environment. How, How do they feel? And also for me, it's, again, like a conversation and it, you know, it changes my practice. And yeah, it's a very like dynamic, nonlinear process. And I just have it with sounds, like I can't really have it with other things. And I, it's also like a very individual, personal thing that I realize I have to be honest with myself. And I feel the most, like the happiest when I'm listening and working with sounds. And then I, I just want to share that. There's also something interesting about the development of music, right? I mean, what, what we consider music obviously has changed or is, is constantly changing. Um, there is also explicitly noise music, but a lot of music is uh, especially new forms of music according to the canon, the Western canon, for example, 
are often considered to be noisy or or non-musical, right? Um, and then now they are very accepted. Like, for example, jazz was not considered to be music um, by many, I guess. And uh, now it it almost has, in some circles, uh, been adapted into a kind of a background, which is a different discussion. But what, what I'm bringing this up is I think that listening to you, I was thinking about how music somehow decouples language from meaning. I mean, in, in the context exactly. of, the, of the article and, and your comments that, that made that very clear to me that there is some sort of communication going on and some sort of language development that is always in flux um, and is not so much occupied with the desire to fixate meaning somehow, even though in the history of music there are also attempts to fixate meaning. But I think it always manages to, also through its performative or embodied capacity, maybe to free itself from, from the, from the desire for meaning. Exactly. Yes, you said it really elaborately, and it's actually the I think like how the meaning of noise and like the word noise itself is uh, developing is very much related to this um, to this discussion. Yeah, we were we were discussing language systems, and then when you were speaking about music, I was also thinking through this idea of what has been considered music and what has not been considered music, and I think that has a strong connection to systems of orders. So basically, how music has always been connected to an idea that music is a specific type of order between sounds. So like there were scales, no, that were considered that that were like the canon scales and all that was like and also a certain type of structure so like all what falls into this type of structure and system of order that is actually mathematical relation between vibrations is considered music no and for example when other when other scales came in or when other scales are are presented and and come in then there's a discussion whether this is music or not for example west and east have two different understandings of what a scale is and like then from the moment where electronic music comes in and other forms of like making sound come in then the notion of basically scales or order between notes is totally subverted and and that's like what we understand now as like contemporary music but it's quite interesting that you're working with sound and then suddenly you have a no there's this idea of communication but then and then there's also an ordering music that also is about conventions or like orders, but those orders are somehow invisible in a way, but we also understand them. They, are, they, don't, they don't have meaning, but they also have a meaning because we like some type of music or we like people don't understand other type of music because it's just like not in this kind of same... Uh... Yeah, um, one part of it is that, um, you know, it's a specific set of orders or even like a specific definition of, um, you know, mathematical like relations that are mostly like accepted as something, let's say like good music or good sound. And then anything that is not within these orders, then it's, uh, you know, it falls outside this uh, accepted. And then, um, but it's also very much connected not only to mathematics, but I think to who says these these are like uh, the preferred orders, like the people who, like historically, these come from like very 
West, like from like very Western ways of thinking, right? And Western discourses. Uh, so part of it is that, um, you know, like, um, like the scales that are used in, for example, uh, non-Western music are not necessarily non-mathematical, but it's just a different way of set of orders, let's say, and uh, more chaotic and not like the order that Western music is uh, leaning towards. And sometimes it's just about the, mostly about the hierarchy in comparison to like different kinds of music. Yeah, I said it really vaguely, but I mean, some some part of it is not about um, only like the orders between scales, but also like who specifies, who says these orders uh, should be the way they are. Yeah. And also, I mean, in terms of communication, what you're speaking about, I feel like rhythm is also a form of order, no? That it's more connected to the way that, yeah, we mainstreamly, for example, experience let's say, electronic music right now, or, or even, yeah, more ex experimental forms of music, they all, like, kind of work with a certain idea of rhythm that is, no, it's, like, the very, very, very decorated idea of, like, this order, and that rhythm is also, a, like, a way, like, a form of attuning the different bodies, and it's also a form of attuning and of, like, commu communicating in a way, because everyone who is listening to the same thing at the same it's in a in a way i don't know it has an effect on your body it's like your heartbeat for example attunes to a certain rhythm when you're listening to that or yeah it, it makes a change on you so indeed there is a I, I don't know this question that you were that ari was posing about meaning and like how this meaning is striped out of the communication then it kind of is very rich when you're speaking about how sound is a tool for that because there are other ways of connection and of let's say like being in the same in the same page or being attuned to to, to others uh, that are quite different but at the same time they also happen in language if you understand language from a sound perspective because words also have specific rhythm and texture so exactly And even the meaning, um, even the meaning that, um, you know, language or s like s uh, language using sounds contains is partly about creating this space that we can deal with a lot of like uncertainty and chaos and things that we don't really understand beyond our, you know, uh, perception or beyond our, yeah, like uh, thinking capacities or feeling capacities. And then again, in music, I think um, somehow we, we're somehow like playing around with these limitations and we under we somehow make sense of our own uncertainties and connect regardless. And I think one part of, for me, one part of like environmental sound art, I don't know, like environmental musicianship is about uh, this kind of relation. If it makes sense that you, yeah, you somehow navigate this uncertainty together. It, it's just like how you also position yourself when you're listening to something. Um, like in very, in a lot of like indigenous ways of thinking, the subject who is being listened to also has agency. It's not that we are, the listener is someone who is doing things, but also the subject who is being listened to um, is agent in their being listened to. 
which is very like, it could be just seen as a metaphor. I think it's uh, also like re, uh, redefining really like uh, how we use, you know, like our tools for communication. And it's very, very challenging. It might seem a bit crazy sometimes. There's something also about that, that I'm thinking about, about what it means to reconnect kind of experiences of music um, and also rhythm, since you were just speaking about rhythm to the environment, right? Um, because somehow we understand music as a um, kind of an abstract aesthetic expression uh, to a certain extent. But a lot of rhythm actually comes from, for example, agricultural work, right? Because there's, there's a certain tool being used. I mean, first of all, there's a certain soil that requires a certain tool, which needs to be worked in a certain rhythm. Um, so rhythm doesn't just kind of occur out of out of a kind of aesthetic desire, right? <laughs> but it, it it really kind of used to be connected to our way of, uh, let's say, engaging with the environment or or extracting resources, and as many other processes that has become totally abstracted, and it became a kind of thing in itself, right? But I think. The question of how to reconnect that is, is very interesting. Exactly. This is actually part of like um, the sound collective that I was talking about in the beginning called Khamush Silence. It's like an artistic research community-based project, um, which is about like um, kind of approaching the music that it, like Iranian music, let's say, which is a very weird term, but let's say Iranian music, um, not only from like uh, the perspective of what's seen as like musical heritage, which is very much related to like instruments and poetry, but actually through sounds of everyday life. And it reminds it of what you said, just reminded me of one of the sounds um, I can send it to you, which is this like um, from like an Iranian perspective, it's a very familiar rhythm from the south of Iran. And it's basically, everyone thinks it's, you know, like this special rhythm with a very special, as you said, like a, like this uh, connected to this like abstract idea. Uh, but then it's basically just from a few years ago, not from like a hundred years ago or something that is um, uh, like connected to this like historical narrative of workers basically repair the holes inside these wooden boats and because of the boats offer this like really acoustic environment and because they're what they do is quite boring they have this kind of like algorithm which specifies uh who does what when and then this creates the rhythm that we know as that uh, like the regional music of the south of iran and it's um you know very it's super inspiring for many musicians um, from Iran and abroad, but, but we are also like seeing, you know, even like a place, let's say Iran, Iranian music, not only as like a place of geography, like a geographical place, but more as, you know, um, yeah, these, um, experiences that, you know, create these ideas. And I think, um, to reconnect, like to respond to your question of how we can reconnect is partly, I think about maybe just recontextualizing and bringing these sounds again into our into our practices and work with them and yeah just um, yeah try to challenge this gap between what we do and what we create and how we live you know 
which is a big claim to say I do this personally as an artist, but this is like my ideal of um, shaping my practice. We, we, wa we want to also ask you very briefly uh, what you are doing at the, at the residency. Um, if you feel like uh, telling us, because you said you're going to go rehearse soon to, um, for the Sonic X Biennale. So maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, um, so it start, uh, the residency started with uh, the idea, was part of like my, you know, uh, developing my ongoing process-based uh, practice about um, knowing more about wetlands and, um, and the, um, the writing that, um, yeah, the kind of visual assembl assemblage or um, creative writing that I did for the Echoes, the third issue of Echoes magazine, uh, was about uh, somehow defining, finding a definition for uh, the wetlands in the north of Iran, but also um, somehow, again, to think through the Sandu's perspective, but this time through their absence. Um, so this was like my starting point uh, for this residency and also to overexpose this um, related to issues of pollution. So uh, one part of uh, this um, exploration was based on understanding and approaching pollution, not just as a set of, you know, like uh, material, material objects or even processes, but um, actually about this kind of like, you know, um, uh, division or abstraction that we were talking about, like how uh, actually this is, this comes from, uh, you know, pollutants or, pol uh, or structures that uh, create pollutions or actually um, lead to uh, um, creating pollutions. But uh, so... For example, um, a lot of like uh, relations between the colonizers and, and the colonized are uh, based on, um, you know, like, as, uh, yeah, structural pollution. Um, so this was a starting point. And then the work I'm doing for the Biennale is uh, actually related to approaching pollution um, 
not as an idea that it's, you know, like a disastrous, only a disastrous byproduct of human living, but to try to approach pollution as a space to imagine how life can be or how to deal with, uh, mm, you know, like the pollutants in our blood and in the air, in the water uh, and in everything. So part of this audiovisual work that I'm doing collaboratively with two visual artists, um, two German visual artists, uh, Telematic and Umatic, uh, is like collectively thinking about and imagining what uh, forms of life can occur uh, in, in spaces uh, that we think of as uh, water-based spaces, but how, uh, and, and they're affected by pollution and what forms of life can be there. So um, we get our like inspiration from um, uh, like similar conversations that we have now, but also through, uh, uh, through like, um, yeah, um, research about, for example, living forms that live uh, in very deep parts of the sea that uh, we actually know very little about. Not very little, but not, you know, we don't really know about it all. And uh, we just use these conversations as our starting point to create a conversation first between us, coming from two different cultures, but then also to yeah to create this uh, work that um, connects connects these ideas for the audience. And also another thing I'm doing as part of this residency and for the Sonic X Biennale is um, a work of like a field exploration, which is being currently developed. So it's going to be a form of like uh, what I do as an artist in the field um, to share that process with others um, in a context of a program called LAG. So to use actual transmission and radio as a medium to uh, explore one aspect of the place collectively, if that makes sense. So I'm somehow like, yeah, um, designing now that how the, how can this happen? And uh, it's going to be a, a, like a layering of uh, our presences together, but also uh, different like narratives related to time and place.
I found your, uh, I found a really nice short bio of yours. And it says, Pantea is a jaw harp virtuoso and part-time fruit taxidermist from Terra. Um, <laughs> what's a fruit taxidermist? <laughs> I think that that was actually, um, so that is the bio in a Terran-based uh, label called Active Listeners Club. So I think, which is very interesting because uh, the label somehow plays around with the, in my view, structures that are, except like that are used within, uh, you know, the, the music, um, like musical spaces. So I think that bio is partly a joke. <laughs> I'm very interested in like fermentations and uh, in fermentation processes and also like in gardening. So I guess that was just um, like a funny way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. I think uh, bios are very difficult to to nail, and this uh, definitely works. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's always um, you know challenging to introduce myself and put so much emphasis on myself uh, when my work is a lot about you know uh, connecting with <laughs> others. So it's um, sometimes it becomes uh, contradictory. <laughs> um. Thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you both. <laughs> Take care. Bye, Bantea. Thank you. Ciao.